Um, Titus chapter 3, we're in Titus 3. The sermon this morning is entitled, Displaying and Declaring God's Goodness. And we've, we've just been singing about this, right? They'll know that we're Christians by our love and make me a servant today. And this letter is filled with these truths. Uh, we are called to display and declare God's goodness. And I have four points for us to think about this morning. First of all, displaying God's goodness through our own goodness, through our own good works. And secondly, displaying God's goodness through humility or gentleness, as verse 2 says. Thirdly, declaring new life from the Spirit and displaying new life from the Spirit, not just niceness. And fourthly, declaring God's gospel with other believers displays our unity in Christ. So let's look at this first point, displaying God's goodness through our own. Look back at verse 1 with me. Notice what verse 1 says. Remind them or remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Or as the ESV puts it, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now the, the, the people that are being spoken to, Paul is telling Titus to remind not just anyone in Crete. We have to keep that in mind. This is not a generic, general command. This is a command for Titus to instruct and remind the Christians in Crete that they're Christians and that part of that shows itself in a, in a variety of ways. One of the ways that that is shown is through what he's saying that they should do and what we should do by extension as Christians in every age. Be submissive or be subject to the rulers and authorities, the human authorities. And increasingly in our age, authority or, or uh, the idea of any sort of authority is being shown to be a bad thing. We're being made to think that there's a direct correlation between authority itself and authoritarianism. What do you think about that? Do you think often when you think about people in positions of authority, do you automatically think of authoritarianism? There's a saying that absolute um, power corrupts absolutely. But authority in itself and positions of authority are not bad. And they can become authoritarian in their nature, but that is not the same thing as authority. But where does this idea of submission and authority even come from? Think about that. If someone was to ask you, just walking down the street, where did this even begin? Where did this idea start with? And I want to suggest, based on... Um, the, the overarching story in the, in the entire scripture, in the entire Bible, that authority and submission begins in the person of God himself. So first of all, there's, there's at least two areas that we can see that. We see it in creation. We see in each of the days of creation, the Father speaking to the Son, 
let there be light. Let us make this and let us make that. And especially on the day six, on the sixth day of creation, let us make man in our own likeness and image. So we see even in creation, there's this position of authority with the father as he speaks to the son. And the son, even before time, is in a posture or a position of submission to that direction and that will. And there's no problem with it. It's good and right and pure. And we see it secondly in redemption or in salvation, in God's plan of salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. But it was the Father who sent the Son. And it was the Son who submitted and followed the direction of this plan. Not against His will. Uh, we actually sing an old hymn um, called Blessed, Blessed Assurance. And one of the lines says, Perfect submission. All is at rest. Why? Because I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Because he has accomplished everything for those who are trusting in him. That's where we find rest. And so Christ comes and he lives and he dies and rises again for whoever will believe in him. We, we focused on that last week in chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. So in creation and in salvation we see this concept from God himself of the goodness of authority and submission. Last week we read these words. For the grace of God has appeared. Referring to the first coming. And then in verse 13. The appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is what we're looking for. So we see in looking back to what God has done in Christ. And looking forward to what he will do in Christ when he returns. We're looking at this authority and submission construct, if you will. And this is what Paul is saying to Titus in verse 1. Remind them of how they have become these people in Christ by looking at Christ and start to live that out properly in their lives, following the very pattern of Christ himself. This is what we are commanded to do. One way we show this posture of submission is to governing authorities. And this whole concept is shown throughout the letter, in fact. Paul starts this letter to Titus with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So he, he's saying he's a servant of God right there in the beginning. And he has no issue with it. And the goodness of his submission to that is seen in the very salvation of Titus and the salvation of many who believe, including ourselves, this morning. So this whole thing again is built in to Titus. In chapter 1, that the authority of God is seen in how a church should be ordered. He says, here are the ways that elders should be Ordained. Here are the ways that you should observe and train up and ordain elders. These are the kind of men that should be in this office. 
And then in chapter 2, he kind of rolls into another sphere. He broadens his focus and says, there's an authority structure not only in the church, but in the home, if you will, in the, in the primary place where life begins and works on a day-to-day basis. Um, he encourages older women to encourage younger women to submit to their husbands. And husbands, by extension, are called to love their wives in that position of authority and leadership, not to exercise it in a domineering way, but to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Paul, right here now, he's broadening his his focus of this grace and of this salvation again into every area of our life. He's saying, not just in the church, not just in the home, but in all that you do, you are to walk with Christ. You are to walk by the Spirit and show that we're Christians by our love, by our submission in all these different ways he's about to speak of. And so he repeats this again for us. If you look at verse 8, I want to stress these things. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. To doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So he's showing them that this isn't just about ourselves. This isn't just about each other. But we are living as Christians. Or we should be living for the good of the world we live in. I want us to consider one other kind of challenge, if you will, to this concept of submission to the authorities. What happens when the authorities are instructing us to do something that's not good? Just keep that question in your mind. But look at Jesus Christ. Here's some food for thought. Jesus submitted himself to all the earthly authorities that were interacting with him. And by doing so, he, he did correct people at times, but he also submitted himself to the authorities. And by doing so, salvation was accomplished. By submitting himself like a lamb to slaughter, he went down that as the song says, down the the Via Della Rosa on the road to Calvary. He accomplished salvation through this posture, this attitude of servanthood, of submission. And that is actually great strength under control. That's the the concept of self-control and of submission. It's not weakness. It's using our gifts and our power and our strength properly. And Jesus shows this best. Jesus even shows this when it came to paying taxes. And I'm sure a lot of people in certain countries didn't like this. But he he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. So Jesus shows us this is something we should do. Paul shows us in Romans 13 that we should submit to the authorities. And Peter in chapter um, chapter 2 of of. First Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish 
those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Excuse me. But come back to this question though. It, it, it's for the purpose of doing good that we're being told to do this, right? So what happens when the governing authorities are telling us to do something that we know is not good? The word good here simply means virtuous. And I think this question is important, especially in our day. How do we determine what's good in the first place? We, we live in an age where morality has become relativized. One person can say, what's good for you is bad for me. And what's bad for you is good for me. And vice versa. And we are increasingly being told to accept that as fine. And somehow, that's even being put into law. It's not going to work very well. But that's the age we live in. And we as Christians have to understand that we determine what is good, what is virtuous, what is right, by one standard. And that's the word of God. By the one who, who made all things. And in particular, who made humanity. Do we submit if we're told, no longer you can preach the gospel in public? Do we accept certain standards that are directly in contrast with the word of God? No. We can't do that. In fact, Paul, who wrote this letter, also showed at times that he disagreed with authorities. But I want you to remember the way that him and Jesus and most of the Christians in the first century and throughout history have, or I shouldn't say most Christians, many Christians throughout the ages have rightly applied this truth. If we are going to disagree with the authorities, we shouldn't do it through riots or bombastic, slanderous, aggressive speech or attitudes. We're called to do it, even in our disagreement, through a submissive, peaceful attitude. And this is a struggle for everyone, even us as Christians. Simply put, we struggle with this as humans because we have a rebellious nature. That's what took place in the Garden of Eden. The serpent, Satan, tempted Adam and Eve to deny the goodness of God's authority, the goodness of the authority of God's word, and try to act as if they knew as, as well. And by that position of submission being tainted, we are fallen, we are corrupted, and we have a natural ability built into us now to dislike all authority. We're naturally anti-authority. And this is further enhanced in the age we live in by things like rights. Rights are important. But a lot of so-called rights um, they have to do with our personal autonomy, our conveniences, and their they're talked about at the expense of what is actually virtuous, what is good for other people, what is actually true, what is the highest good. So here's the, here's the key that we have to follow when it comes to verse 1. Unless something is in direct opposition with God's word, God's agenda for this world we live in, for this, the life we live in this world, we should submit all the time. And if it is against his direct agenda, 
we should politely, respectfully disagree. And those of us who are Christians who are in positions like the legal field and in the government have a hard task too because we should use our positions to respectfully fight for the honor of God's name to be held up. But in all this, we want to make sure that we're doing what he says. Be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. God is the one who instituted our governments. And he says they are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and command those who do right. We are also told in the Bible that woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Even when our authorities, if and when our authorities begin to do that, we, we maintain this posture of godly submission in all that we do. And there are many do's or at least a few different things that we are to do, but there's one do not that you see in these two verses. Look at the beginning of verse 2, chapter 3. Slander no one. Slander no one. One translation I read said malign. But the, the Greek word that this comes from is blasphemeo. Blasphemeo. Sound familiar? Sounds like the word blaspheme, right? It means literally to defame, to rail on, to revile, to speak evil of, to slander. And nowhere is this description of speech more prevalent, showing up more than on places like um, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and similar social media platforms. But Christian, if we want to understand how to have the right attitude and to respond properly, if we want to understand how to discern what is true goodness and true virtue, how to submit in a godly manner, how to live in a godly manner, if we want to be a blessing and do good in thought and in word and in deed as we live in this world, do you want to, do you want to develop a solid, healthy, biblical worldview of all that's going on? Well, we need to unplug our minds from things like Facebook more often and plug our minds into God's book, Amen. the Bible. We will be better for ourselves and others by doing this. And we will learn what it means to develop the fruit of the Spirit that Paul speaks about in Galatians 5 and elsewhere and not the fruit or the mindset of this world. Then we'll be better equipped to display God's goodness through our goodness, which brings us to the second point. Displaying God's goodness through humility. Not only are we not to slander, but look again at verse 2 and 3. Slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate and always gentle toward everyone. Why? At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Why should we not slander people who may be blind to truth or who may be offensive in some way? Why should we be peaceable and, and gentle with unbelievers and not slander them or each other for that matter? 
Because that is what we once were. We were once in this camp of slanderers. And maybe you don't think you fit into any of these categories of foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures and hateful. Maybe you feel like you don't fit into any of these or you you didn't fit before you were Christian into any of these categories. But that is the realm that we belong to. I want you to turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. And this is a kind of a parallel passage. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a well-known passage. I'm just going to read the first three verses of Ephesians 2. It's on page 827 in the Pew Bibles. As for you, speaking to the church, to believers in Ephesus, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan. That's who God tells us we used to follow, whether we like it or not. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, stick a pin. Come back to Titus now, chapter 3. You can read those verses if you want. The following ones. But this is a, a parallel passage and to summarize the words of Titus 3.3 3, with a few simple words from Ephesians 2.1, I'll just put it like this. You were dead. Why do we speak with humility to people we may disagree with? Because we were dead. And by the way, that the translation of that word doesn't mean sick. It doesn't mean taking a spiritual siesta. It means dead. That's the strongest word that could be used to describe our spiritual state. This is why even though we should be confident, we should be confident in God's truth. We need to also cloak or clothe that confidence in humility and gentleness. We did not make ourselves alive, Christians. Dead people do not do anything but stay dead. That's pretty basic logic, right? So how can a dead person come to life? How did we get out of this state? Thank you for asking. This is the third point. Declaring new life from the Spirit. Look at the following verse of Titus 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Hallelujah. This is God writing the spiritual Um, autobiography or biography of his church 
He's telling us how we came to a position of being in Christ. There's a simple theological word for this. It's called regeneration. In fact, look back at verse 5. That word rebirth is better translated regeneration. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19, 28. When he's speaking of what you could call a cosmic regeneration at the end of time. That he himself is going to bring about. He says, he says this, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, or in the regeneration, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Titus 3.5 and Matthew 19.28, these are the only two texts, these are the only two places in the New Testament that use the word regeneration. But the concept is seen elsewhere. We see it in John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, teaching Nicodemus. Remember that passage in John 3? Nicodemus comes to him by night, afraid of what his friends might think, because he's going for instruction from the one they're trying to kill. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you want to see or enter the kingdom, you must be reborn, born from above. This is the greatest personal miracle anyone will ever experience this side of heaven. And trust me, this is something that we can become a bit numb to and overlook. Are you looking for some kind of miracle today? Let me tell you this again. There is no miracle greater than Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit raising dead people to life. Amen. And trust me, this is pictured in passages like Jeremiah 23 when the, the new covenant promise of the Spirit is prophesied and in Ezekiel uh, 36 and 37 with the valley of dry bones when he says, Son of man, prophesy to these bones and each element, the ligaments, the joints, the, the, the flesh and then the breath one by one is prophesied and, and, and Ezekiel speaks as God commands him and eventually a valley of very dry bones is standing as an army for the Lord. This is a, this is a picture of the church. This is what God has done in us. So we have to keep that in the context of whatever good works we're talking about. See, that's what Paul is doing here. He wants to remind the people, I'm not just talking about having a soup kitchen. That's a good thing. We are called to provide for people's needs, clothe people, feed people, visit people who are sick, encourage people. But it's in the context of this great work that God has done so that we can use our good works to testify to something that lasts more than all of that. Jesus was showing this when he healed people and even raised people from the dead. Lazarus died again, physically. But then, trust me, there, as a man who had been raised from the dead and became a believer, he knew what it meant to be raised from the dead. And so he looked for the second coming himself. And he will see it. 
with all God's people who have experienced this resurrection. This is what God has done. This is what makes any of our good deeds any good. Otherwise, whatever we do, even sometimes in the name of Christ, if we're not doing it as one of His people, in a sense, our good deeds are no better than filthy rags. When we declare the gospel, church, we're not just proclaiming the amazing things that Jesus Christ accomplished in Himself, in His life on this earth, in His resurrection. But we are declaring as part of this gospel new life that Christ brings into the believer in the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. One pastor often jokes about the idea that so many of us have forgotten all ten commandments, but somehow we remember the eleventh commandment, thou shalt be nice. Well, again... We're talking about grace-based godliness as we look through the book of Titus. Not a simple niceness. There are many different religions and people who claim to have no religion who start hospitals and things like that. So just good works in themselves can be useful, but they're, they're not what we're called to as a church. But I will say this. As much as the church is being thrown under the bus... For many things today. Most, over time, most of the hospitals, orphanages, schools, and you you go down the list, they were started by people who were Christians. Who were following commands like this. Who were seeking to, to bind up those who were broken. And help those in need. And at the heart of their soul in the midst of that was that God had done this for them in a special way. And they were giving back. Paying it forward, as we say. So we can take a little slander once in a while from naysayers. But let us remember, even in correcting them sometimes, as they sometimes need to be corrected, that we can do it with humility. And do it knowing that ultimately we're not living to vindicate our name, but to vindicate the truth of God's name. And He will vindicate Himself. And He will show Himself through our good deeds and our good attitudes in this life. So look again with me at verse 5. I just want to show you how amazing this salvation is. Each person of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth or regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom, not which, for the grammar geeks out there, if He had said which, right, that would mean He's talking about an object, not a person. But the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. Verse 6, whom He poured out on us richly or generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is a a plan that God the Father orchestrated in eternity past that has been accomplished through the Son and that is poured out into the life of every Christian. And we have been brought into that by grace. The Trinity is 
the one true God, and He has made us His people by grace. May we be a people then who declare this gospel of the finished work of Christ and of the ongoing work of the Spirit for those who believe. This new life that we can declare and display God's goodness through it. And finally, declaring God's gospel with other believers displays our unity in Christ. Look with me again at verses 9 through 15. Before I read that, there's, there's an important lesson for us to learn, I think, in this passage and in these verses. Paul makes mention a few times of correcting and rebuking and um, challenging throughout this, this letter. But we need to pay attention to this lesson seen in the first couple of verses we're about to read. Think of the way a husband loves the health of his bride. In the same way that a husband loves his bride, God loves the health of his bride, the church, and is more concerned and committed to the purity of us and the health of us as his church and our worship and our mission than anyone else is put together, than any of us. God is more committed. And that's, that's good news. Amen? But I have, I have a, another side to that story to flesh it out. God also accomplishes His works in the church through all of His people and not apart from them. Each and every one of us. That's why Paul uses that metaphor of the body. And that each of the members of the body have a vital role to play. We are all special in this sense. We are all unique and we need each other working together. God accomplishes His works in the church through His people and not apart from them. And so we each play a vital role in fulfilling this ministry of the Great Commission, as it were. When Jesus gave this Great Commission to go and make disciples, it was given to the whole church not just to those on the mountain or not just to church leaders. And I think this is a great privilege. And it gives more strength to the mission. But there's certain things that challenge that at times. So let's look at verses 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Stop there for now. There are two hindrances that I see in these verses to, to gospel ministry. The first one is these controversial quarrels and arguments about things like genealogy or the law. And Paul says, they're foolish. It's all foolish. Some of the time, these kinds of discussions that, that turn into quarrels, they start off in a good place. Maybe even in the context of Bible studies, where you spend hours of time focusing your, your mind and discussing things that perhaps sit more in the realm of speculation. 
things which are unclear. Things like genealogies, trying to figure out why perhaps the nation of Islam does this or that because they were from this particular person. Or why people over in Europe act like this because they came from this person. Speculative Bible studies, we'll call them. Or maybe geographical sites or signs of the times. Is there an apocalypse? Is there Armageddon? When is it going to happen? How can we find this out from CNN or Fox News? You fill in the blank. You get what I'm saying. Other times, it's not just a matter of speculation. It's things about the law which are being emphasized. As if these aspects of the law, and in particular, the law which God gave to his old covenant people, Israel, are part of the gospel. This is a false and heretical teaching, no matter what the lesson is. Paul says that all of this together is foolishness. Regarding the law, just look back with me at chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Circumcision party. These were people who were taking things that God had commanded to people in a different covenant, not the one we're in now, not the one he's in relationship with people who are in Christ with now. Things like the circumcision of the flesh, certain dietary laws, what you can eat, what you can't eat. And they were saying, you should believe in Jesus and add these things to your life and then you'll be a faithful Christian. No, that's a lie. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And part of what he meant there was those covenants have been completed. So anyone who is teaching something like that needs to understand that it's finished. Put simply. But Paul says we need to avoid these kinds of things. So what does he say to do? Look at verse 11. Verse 11, or sorry, the end of verse 10. He says that these people are warped, in other words, the way they think about things, and sinful. Whether they know they're teaching the truth or perhaps they're living contrary to the truth or teaching others to live contrary to the truth. They are warped and sinful. And verse 11 of chapter 1 that we just read, it says that they are to be silenced. And that silencing refers to a clear correction of whatever the false teaching or the distraction teaching might be. So there's a second way that I think gospel ministry is damaged along with that. It's when we choose to leave those kinds of matters untouched. Maybe it's too uncomfortable to deal with a potential argument over a doctrine or a person's choice of lifestyle. Maybe there is an attempt at correction, maybe more than once, but then that's the end of it. There's no change in the false ideas that we're trying to help a person to, to change. 
or they're holding on to it. The problem with that is that ideas don't stay put. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says that he needs to do the same thing. He needs to silence and correct and remove because ideas spread like gangrene. You know that disease that just eats away at the body until you have to amputate? That's the picture that's, that's being given here. Because again, God cares about the purity of His church. But the way that the purity of His church, the pure worship He receives from us, the pure witness He receives from us, and the world sees by us, happens through us. So these things are given over, sometimes very hard things are given to us to do. So if there's anyone promoting something, whether it's a false teaching or waste of time teaching, a double-minded lifestyle or anything that could be divisive, Paul, again, he gives us the remedy at the end of verse 10. Have nothing to do with them. It's a very, very strong word. And it's supposed to feel uncomfortable. Because here's the, here's the real goal of addressing anything that's wrong. We want restoration. We want each other to be walking in the light. We want, each of us should want the other person to be walking hand in hand, as that song says. Walking in the truth, because that's what's best for us. But did Paul and other apostles make this up? Where did this idea come from? It came from Jesus Christ. In Matthew 18, the very first time we see church discipline comes from the lips of the Lord Himself. And you can go read that later if you want. But discipline is for the purpose of, again, keeping worship, witness, and mission ordered and pure for God's honor. Not for the honor of anyone, but God. And that is when you, you feel the closeness of the communion with the Lord that sometimes we don't feel. Possibly because some of these hard things are not happening. But all Paul is doing here is applying the same principles that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 towards unrepentant sin to any kind of divisiveness. So here is the question that every church should ask, in my opinion. Based on this, do we love Jesus? Do we love Jesus more than ourselves, more than our comfort zones, more than our closest loved ones? And Jesus would respond if we say we do. He would say, well, if you love me, keep my commands. Feed my sheep. Obey me. So we go home today or tonight, and I encourage us to read through this passage again, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Titus 3, 10 through 11 again, and ask God to help us all to strive to obey for the, for the goal of restoration, for us to walk faithfully, and anyone who clearly doesn't want to do so, to give us the strength to lovingly help them do so. But praise God, we're given a vision of something beautiful in the last few verses, something powerful, in the following verses. Look at verses 12 through 15. Paul tells Titus, he is sending someone 
to come and cover his ministry in Crete. As soon as I send Artemis, or maybe Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. It just means spend winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive life lives. So Paul is sending someone, could have been Artemis or Tychicus, to cover the ministry in Crete so that Titus can come and spend winter with him. Notice this, this camaraderie, this brotherly fellowship. In the list of names, we have two that we don't really know anything about. This name, Artemis, and then Zenos the lawyer. The Bible doesn't really say anything else about them. We have a few other names that we can learn about from the book of Acts. We see that Zenos is a lawyer. So we have Christians in, in different areas of employment, which is great. But they all have the same, they all have one thing in common. Notice what they have in common. They are on mission together for the gospel. Look at verse 15. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. They're on this mission together for the gospel. As verse 15 says, they're in the faith and they're focusing on going to and supporting those in the faith. They're saved and they're empowered by God's grace to display and de declare His goodness through their lives and with whatever they're doing. And therefore Paul ends with the words, Grace be with you all. And we all need that grace to help us stay on God's mission, don't we? Let's close now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank